start the reading for tonight that Luke's going to be preaching on, and it is found in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, and I'm going to be reading to four, chapter 4, verse 1 as well, and it's, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me. Through for 40 years, they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that we would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that we are not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Now, to help us to get something of the emotion of the Hebrew readers, what they were feeling at this point as this letter arrives in the post, I want to tell you a story. Well, it's a a parable, really, to set the scene. I want you to imagine, and you can close your eyes if that helps, imagine you've spent your whole life living at sea. The water, the waves, the storms, that's where you were born, that was your home, that's what you were used to. Then one day someone tells you about land. They invite you ashore and you begin to experience solid ground. You experience hills and valleys, trees and grass and you see that there's so much more to God's creation than just those waves. The land is beautiful, it's diverse, you love it. However, now imagine that after a little while of living that good life on the land, maybe you arrived in spring, you have the summer, but the autumn comes, the heavy rainstorm comes, life on the land gets a bit tougher. You experience landslides, never had them before, oozy mud, You've never had that before. You discover brambles that scratch you and gravel that gets in your knees if your 
fall over and cuts you open. All those things make the land look harder than you first thought. In that uh, sort of a day, when you're wet and you're cold and you're muddy and you're scratched, you find yourself close to a cliff and you're looking out at the sea. You might be tempted to jump back in. You might remember the simplicity of life on the waves, that feeling of floating that you loved before. You remember the time when your joints didn't ache from climbing hills and your knees weren't bloodied from gravel. The cool of the sea might seem attractive again. You might have even seen old friends bobbing by in a boat or even heard of other landlubbers that had packed it all in and jumped back in the sea. said, I like the sea. I like the comfort. And as you're there pondering the thought of going back, do I miss the sea? You slip, you fall over the edge of the cliff, but just at the last moment you grab for something, anything above you to stop you plummeting into those waves. And your hand grasps a root, a substantial chunky root, which you imagine must be from that big old oak tree at the top of the cliff. In that moment of just holding on to the new life you've experienced on land, in that moment of considering letting go and falling back into the comfort of the sea, you know the power of the sea, you know it will probably pull you under its powerful waves, but you're longing for the comfort of its rhythm and its bobbing. That's the sort of moment we find the Hebrew readers in here. They had known the Jewish way of life from birth. They had loved its traditions and rules until somebody showed them the beauty of Jesus. Until somebody showed them the good news of freedom from rules. Real forgiveness, a firm foundation... This had all previously eluded them in their old way of life, where they'd been rocked back and forth with guilt and then sacrifice, and more guilt and then more sacrifice. Now they've been taught the good news of a firm ground beneath their feet, but this life of following Jesus had gone a bit hard. The storms had come, and they were at risk of slipping back over the cliff into their old way of life, just like our landlubber falling back into the sea. And the writer to the Hebrews sees that they're walking too close to the cliffs, sees they're about to fall, and that's when he writes to them. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, what we know, so that we do not drift away. He is writing to remind them of what they learnt, to remind them of good news, all the things land has to offer that the sea couldn't, what Jesus has to offer that the law couldn't. And his main message throughout Hebrews is hold on. Hold on, don't drift away. Don't let go. Jesus is better. The sea is dangerous. The land is better. The old way of life is dangerous. Jesus is better. So as I mentioned, chapter 2, verse 1, begins this do not drift away language. Remember what you've heard. Don't drift away. And this sort of language pops up again and again and again, as we'll see as we study Hebrews. In chapter 4, next week, 
Um, I'm just going to paraphrase a few sections because I can't give you all the context, but chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Be careful that none of you fall. Chapter 4, verse 14, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Chapter 6, verse 4, If those who'd been enlightened were to fall away, they'd be crucifying the Son of God again. Chapter 6, verse 19, We have a hope that is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Chapter 10, verse 23, let us, without wavering, hold on to the hope we profess. Let us consider how we can encourage and spur one another on. Also chapter 10, verse 32 to 36, remember those earlier days when you first saw the light, when you stood your ground in the face of suffering, you knew you had something better. Don't throw away your confidence, persevere, and you'll receive the reward you were promised. And Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3, again paraphrasing. Let's persevere. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't grow weary and lose heart. It's the same thing again and again. Hold on. Be strong. Persevere. Fix your eyes. In our imaginary story, the writer of this letter is like a good friend who comes and sits near that clifftop and says, hold on. I'm going to talk you through it. Hold on. Hold firm. Focus on the root. That's the hope you have. Focus on the oak tree at the other end of it. It's strong and secure. Focus on the blessings of the land. Focus on all that is better on firm ground. And thinking like this might help us greatly as we study Hebrews. It's already helping me as I'm reading it. Because there's many passages where the writer goes into some pretty deep theological comparisons. Comparisons of the law versus Jesus. Moses versus Jesus. The old covenant versus Jesus. The new covenant versus Jesus. It, it, it goes on. Old sacrifices, sorry, versus Jesus. And we get pretty deep into some of these heavy bits of theology. And sometimes it gets uh, quite confusing. But we need to remember... And the writer does often bring our head back up to remember his main point is Jesus is better and is worth clinging on to. So when we get deep in some weeks in the Old Testament theology, look out for the writer saying, keep holding on, don't let go. With this in mind, I have one main point tonight. It's just five short words. But around that point, we're going to ask a couple of questions. And the main point is straight from the passage. That's always best that it comes straight from the passage. Straight from verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, these are the five words, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. In some translations, it's actually only two words. Consider Jesus. There's a a Greek word used, katanoeo, I think is exactly how you pronounce it. It means think about Jesus, understand Jesus, stare at Jesus intently to really know him. So the NIV says, fix your thoughts on Jesus, consider him, is what other translations go with. So fix your thoughts on Jesus. Well, the first question is, who? Who? We're told to focus on Jesus, but does the writer mean 
the baby in a manger, or the boy in the temple, or the washer of feet, or the donkey rider? Which Jesus? Who does he mean? Well, already, here we are in Hebrews 3, and already in the first two chapters, which really is sort of one big chunk, the writer has introduced us to Jesus, and let's look at how he's talked about Jesus. If you remember the first sermon in our series, it was on chapter 1. If you don't remember it, do flick back to the beginning, the first few verses of chapter 1. And particularly in verse 3, we see that Jesus is introduced as the Son. It says here, the Son of God is the revelation of God. So verse 3 of chapter 1. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. The exact representation of his being, the radiance of his glory, his God revealed. That's how the writer starts his letter. He remembers that Jesus is God, God the Son. But that is not where the writer finishes chapter 2, the end of his first thought. Starts with God Jesus is God, the Son. He finishes, the end of chapter 2, with Jesus calling men his brothers. Chapter 2, verse 11, says Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Verse 14 says, since we, the children, have flesh, he too shared in that humanity. And verse 17 says, he had to be made more like his brothers in every way. So the writer starts with Jesus as God and finishes his section with Jesus as man. The writer wants us to consider Jesus as the God-man. And if you were to flick through all these verses from chapter 1 through chapter 2 to this point, the beginning of chapter 3 you would see that the writer goes into a bit more detail than he's just God, man. In between starting with God the Son and finishing with Jesus the man, he says, Jesus is the Son. He's the heir of all things. He's the maker of the universe. He's the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of God. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the purifier. He's the ruler of angels. He's the righteous king. He's an anointed one, the anointed one. He's salvation announcer. He's a master of all. He's a taster of death. He's the author of salvation. He's a holy men maker. He's a brother. He's a devil destroyer. He's a slave freer. He's a people helper, an atonement maker, and a temptation facer. And each one of those names, each one of those attributes of who Jesus is, gradually moves us from him being God to him also being man, and he's everything in between. So fix your thoughts on Jesus. Well, who is he? He's the God-man. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Why? That's my second point. Well, because Jesus is two in one. He's God and man. But he's also two in one in his role here. Here in this verse, verse 1 of chapter 3, he's described as apostle and high priest. 
And I think that those two words are summarizing all of what's gone before in the previous two chapters. We started in chapter 1, verse 3, with the statement, he is the exact representation of God. He's God revealed. So he's a representative to us of God. And the word apostle is a good one for that. A representative to us of God. Apostle means sort of ambassador or representative. Someone who comes to you in the place of another. He comes to us to show, to reveal, to represent God. So let me just read again from chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So here, he is a representative to us of God, from God. But Jesus has two roles in one. He's also the opposite. He is a representative for us to God. A bit like a negotiator or a mediator. He came from God to us and he goes back to God to intercede for us, to speak now on our behalf. And that role is called the high priest role in this passage. So he has these two jobs of speaking to us about God and speaking to God about us. So the why of focusing on him is because he is the intermediary between us and God. We need to have relationship with God. We need to hear from him. We need to plead before him. And Jesus is the one who reveals him, radiates him, and Jesus is the one who can then speak on our behalf because he took on our flesh and he became our brother. So you've got to fix your thoughts on Jesus, the God-man, And you've got to fix your thoughts on Jesus because he's the only one who stands in that gap. There's a big gap. We need to know our Heavenly Father. And Jesus is the only one who stands in the middle as he is the God-man. So fix your thoughts on Jesus. What will we see when we consider him? And when we look upon him, what will we see? The Hebrews would have recognized that this role of an intermediary was needed. They had always held Moses in such high esteem, and that's sort of what he did. And this thought must have been going through the writer's mind as he wrote verse 1, because he quickly brings up Moses in the next verse. Jesus had this two-in-one job to do, as had Moses. So we read... Um, reading from halfway through verse 1 in chapter 3. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. 
We know that Moses was often called into God's presence. God says to him, come here, Moses. I want you to represent humankind. He called him towards the burning bush. He calls him up the mountain. God says, I've got something to say to my people. Moses, you come here and represent them. Listen. And I will speak. And then you can go back to your people and be a representative of me. And Moses was faithful to both the God who appointed him and to the people who listened to him. Moses truthfully declared God's word to the people, even when that was a rebuke or a challenging message. And not only was he faithful in presenting the exact message God had, he was also faithful to his own people when he humbly pleads for them in front of God. He asks for grace and leniency from an almighty God. We see this in Exodus 32 and 33. It's recorded for us how he has this intermediary role. When he goes up the mountain, the people get bored waiting for a message from God. So they make this golden calf to worship. And God says in Exodus 32, verses 7 to 10, to Moses, go back down. Your people have become corrupt. They've turned away from what I commanded. I'm picking it up in verse 9 of chapter 32. He says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them then I'll make you into a great nation. So Moses is given this message of, I am angry with you. And he's got to pass it on to his people, his brothers and sisters. But immediately, Moses speaks on behalf of his brothers and sisters in Exodus 32. Straight away, he says, Oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? In verse 12, he says, turn from your fierce anger. Relent in verse 14. Well, in verse 14, we see God does relent. And Moses can then head down the mountain to talk to his people. And he faithfully gives them the message, God is angry with you. But he has represented them to God. He's been faithful to his people. The next day, actually, he goes back up the mountain he says to his people, you guys are sinners, but I'm going back up the mountain to speak to God to see if I can atone for your great sin. So Moses was faithful in listening to God, faithful in pleading the case of his brothers and sisters, faithful in telling the people of God's anger, and faithful in climbing the hill again to try and atone for their sins. Moses had set the people this great example of a faithful intermediary, a faithful double representative. But the writer of the Hebrews, or the writer to the Hebrews here says, now you remember that great Moses? Well, Jesus is greater. Jesus has been counted worthy of a greater honor than Moses. Moses' foundational role was to be the revealer of God's will. But Jesus is more than a revealer of God's will. 
He doesn't just go to tell people about the house he's building. Jesus is the house builder. Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is a faithful son. And on him, God's house, and here in these verses where it says house, it means his his household, the people he's building, on Jesus, on the faithful son, the house is built. Moses had a great level of faithfulness in what he was asked to do, delivering God's word to his people. But Jesus was faithful in delivering God's salvation plan to the people. And in fact, making a holy people, a godly household. When Moses says to the people in Exodus 32 to 34, you're sinners, but I'm going to go and talk to God and try and make atonement for us, for you. God did give him a partial way of making atonement. He said, blood needs to be shed. There will need to be sacrifice. There's got to be obedience. There's going to need to be cleansing and worship and repentance and more sacrifice and more obedience and more worship. And so that's when the Israelites got into this never-ending back and forth in the waves of guilt and sacrifice. Guilt and repentance and more sacrifice. Like the waves back and forth It never satisfied. It was partial atonement. But we know that Jesus brings full atonement. Back in Hebrews, now we leave Exodus for a moment. In Hebrews chapter 2, which we were in last week, verse 17 says, For this reason Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 17 is saying, he was faithful as the high priest making atonement. Not just delivering the message, not explaining how it happens, but being the atonement. In verse 9 of chapter 2, a few verses before, is more explicit in exactly what Jesus did. We know what Jesus did, but let's read verse 9 together. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, is now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So when we focus on Jesus, we see a son who represents his father perfectly and represents us perfectly to the father. And we see a son who faithfully performed his duties, the duties of a high priest, and there's more of that to come in chapter 5. That will be unpacked a little bit more. But for now, let's just notice he died to make atonement for us. Moses had a duty to perform, but it wasn't just procl- that was just proclaiming God's word. The duty Jesus performs is being the final completed sacrifice, which means a new house of God can be built. Jesus is not only faithful in representing God's house, 
He gives his body and blood to be the bricks and mortar that hold the new house together. So we've had fix your thoughts on Jesus. Who? Well, he's the God-man. Why? Because he's the only one who can stand in that gap. What do we see? We see that he was faithful in standing in that gap, representing to us who God is, representing us to God, and making atonement for us. Fix your thoughts on Jesus when, is my next question. Very short one. The Hebrew writer is going to get into a deeper thought in a minute about faithfulness. That thought of, oh, faithfulness is on his mind. And all of next week, will expound on that. But just before he gets into too much of that, he remembers that those Hebrews are just clinging on to a root. He thinks, before I get into some deep theology on faithfulness here and the reward of it, let me remind them to hold on. Let me make clear the main point is you've got to hold on. You've got to focus on Jesus. So just temporarily, we'll skip verses 7 to 11. We'll look at 12 to 14. And here the writer answers the question, when should we fix our eyes on Jesus? It says in verse 12, See to it, or take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away or falls away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confession firmly to the very end. When should we focus on Jesus? It says encourage one another in verse 13 daily, today. And in fact, not just today, every day that is called today. So tomorrow will be today, and the day after will be a today. And in each one, we hold fast. We focus our thoughts on Jesus. So he's answered who we're focusing on, why we're focusing on Jesus, what we see when we focus on Jesus, when we should do it daily. But there could be one last question from his readers. Is this easy? Is it easy? And I think the writer must now have been reminded by God's Holy Spirit of what happened to the people that Moses had been a representative for. In verses 7 to 11, we temporarily skipped... The writer quotes from Psalm 95, and it comes up again in verse um, 15 and 16 and onwards. A lot more will be said about Psalm 95 next week, but this is the beginning of the next thought that the writer talks about. It goes into chapter 4. And the writer is keen to underline that focusing on our thoughts on Jesus every day isn't easy. Just like clinging onto that root on the edge of a cliff isn't easy, neither is clinging onto Christ. It should be, but we're sinners. And the writer recognizes that we need to do it daily, disciplinedly, together. Verse 13 said, Encourage one another daily. 
Most of those hold-on verses I mentioned earlier from chapter 4 and 6 and 10, they say us, we, they say you, plural. The writer is constantly referring to a group, a family, a church, doing it together. And Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25, we know it well, it says, let's spur one another on. Let's not give up meeting together. Let's encourage one another in good works. Let's do it together. Why does the writer underline that we should see to it, here in verse 12, or take care that no one has a hard heart, no one falls away? Why do we keep an eye out for each other? Well, it's because this group that Moses was leading out of Egypt, they forgot to keep one another focused on God. They started thinking of themselves or thinking of the world around them or thinking of food back in Egypt. And they grumbled. They wished their lives were better. They imagined Things for them could have been better somewhere else. This is what we're being reminded of. This is what comes to the writer's mind in verses 7 to 11 and 16 to 19 and then on into the chapter next week, chapter 4. These Israelites had known the persecution of slavery in Egypt. They'd known what it was to be a people without a home, to be in exile to be somebody else's possession, they were slaves. And they'd known that poverty, and then they'd known God perform miracles in front of them, the plagues. They'd known God's grace in sparing them from the plagues. They'd seen that they were God's favorites, his chosen ones, only they had survived the plagues. They'd lived through the Passover, not just celebrated it, but they'd lived through it. Then they'd seen God change Pharaoh's heart. They'd seen a cloud of smoke lead them out of Egypt and fire at night. They'd walked through the sea because God had parted it. They'd known the poverty. They'd experienced the blessings. And yet they took their eye off their God for a little while in the wilderness. And they found themselves completely rebelling against him. Psalm 95, which is being quoted here in Hebrews 3, is a warning. It it starts as, let's praise him, let's praise him, let's praise him. The first part of Psalm 95. The end is because we're so easily distracted, because we harden our hearts. Remember, the Israelites did it. They knew the blessings and they got distracted and hardened their hearts. This is the big warning for us. Even if we've experienced the most amazing conversion, even if we've had the biggest baptism of the Spirit, the hugest forgiveness from the terriblest sins, even if we've lived through revival and and we've been part of thousands of conversions to Christ, if we take our focus off Jesus, we can find ourselves lost at sea falling away. It's a very real danger, and the writer repeats this warning numerous times in this letter. Today, focus on Jesus. Then when tomorrow comes, 
it will be today. So focus on Jesus again. And you'll struggle to do this alone, so do it together. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. Help each other on the way. Don't let anyone fall away. Take care, brothers and sisters, to keep yourselves on the dry land, watching out for the dangerous cliffs. So from this passage, there's five words I want you to remember. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. If you can't remember five, two. Consider Jesus. Every day. And why? Well, verse three. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour. In this occasion, Jesus is found worthy of greater honour than Moses. In the last chapters, he was found worthy of greater honour than the angels. We'll find as we go through the book that he is greater than the old sacrificial system and he's greater than the old covenant. So we hold on, we fix our thoughts on Jesus, who is better, who is greater.